of the scriptures. Uh, and so this is wonderful to see the truth of what is sung. And uh, we're reminded with songs like what we just sung. Uh, I'm not sure if you noticed as well, but uh, Hark the Herald, well, written by Charles Wesley. Uh, the Wesley brothers were uh, two men who were mightily used of the Lord. John Wesley, the other brother, uh, was sort of the, the preacher pastor and grateful for his life and ministry. Charles um, was uh, sort of the hymn writer, the, the musician, wrote countless hymns and things. But uh, I, that, that, uh, that hymn, that carol that we just sung, is one of my, one of my favorites. Not to sing because it's so high and I can't get up there. I've got to hold my nose to do it and uh, kind of do, do that number or something. You're kind of, ah! But, uh, but so, so high up. But, but you listen to those words. And in that song, there are so many doctrines covered. I mean, Hark the Herald is, is almost a whole miniature systematic theology that can be sung. It's, so it's wonderful. Uh, but the Psalms remind us much of that. They show us who God is. They show us who we are. They show us man's desperate need for God. And so I encourage you, if you're struggling, get to the Psalms. If you're not struggling, get to the Psalms. Read the Psalms. The Psalms are so encouraging, uh, even convicting at times and things. So tonight we're going to look at Psalm 15. It's a shorter one. Just five verses, and essentially this one is going to be looking at uh, words of wisdom here, living in the presence of, of God. And so that's what we're going to be focusing on here tonight. Psalm 15 begins this way. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor, in whose eyes a vile person is contemned, but he honoreth them that fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. He that putteth not out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you tonight. We just want to thank you that we can sing uh, some more Christmas songs. And Lord, just to see the great depth of how you've used other men uh, to write these hymns for our benefit and for your glory, Lord, that we could uh, learn the Scripture and to see all these wonderful doctrines sung. And, and Lord, how wonderful it is not just to sing that praise to you, but Lord, as well, it edifies us as we sing together and as we gather around your word now. I pray, Lord, that you would help me give me physical, spiritual strength tonight just to preach your word, that you would fill me with your spirit, that you would strengthen each one of us tonight. And as we look at this psalm, God, that you would give us the truth that is needed, Lord, that we would be able to have it applied to our hearts by uh, your spirit. And, and Lord, as well, that we would put this into effect in our life, God, so that we might live and walk in your presence. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin by talking about uh, this idea of, of God's presence. We're going to see here the way that this psalm is sort of structured. There are several others who look at it and try to work your way through it because some psalms are a little bit easier to do so than others. But if we look at this one, this is sort of a question and answer sort of psalm. Here in verse 1, he's going to present the question. Verses 2 through the first portion of verse 5, he's going to give sort of the response or the answer. And then there's going to be a, a promise tagged on at the very last uh, sort of couple of words of verse number five, that promise is going to be that he that doeth these things shall never be moved. That's going to be talking about that we are going to be steadfast, a stable life, a wise life. So as we've talked about so far, as we've looked at Psalms and Proverbs on Sunday nights, we talk about wise living and what that looks like. All of us want to be, to be wise men, as we sort of talk about Christmas, if you will, but we all want to be wise. We often think that we're more wise than we actually are. We often see other people in our life and we go, wow, they're wise. I wish I was as wise as they are. But I can tell you this, as we've looked at Psalms and Proverbs alike, wisdom itself is available to all who would make themselves available to wisdom. And now here, wisdom itself is, is out there for all of us to attain, to achieve, but wisdom is only found in knowing Christ. It is only found in the truth of God's word. And so here's the thing. Wisdom is offered to everyone in this room tonight. But I can tell you this, and as we already know, not everybody in this room is going to be as wise as the next one, right? There's these different levels of wise, and it's not because someone's smarter than other or better looking than other or more rich or more poor than the other. It's going to be what you do with the Word of God. You will be as spiritual as you want to be. You will be as deep as you want to be. You will be as growing as you want to be. And that is the wonderful freedom that God gives to us. Ultimately, He allows us to go, how far do you want to go? Now, when we look at this tonight, what we're going to find is that the question begins here in verse number one. And the question is this. Psalmist here, we believe it to be a Psalm of David, first of all. There's some mystery as to exactly when this was 
uh, this psalm was penned. Uh, many uh, Spurgeon and many other commentators today would even look at it and would believe that this is coming about when the tabernacle is returned, excuse me, when the uh, Ark of the Covenant is returned back and David is rejoicing. He sets up a tent there at Gibeon to uh, house it and, and all of these things. So this sort of return back to worship and uh, return back to the dwelling amongst the presence of God. He says, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? Now, these two questions, if you're like me, you kind of read them and you go, are these the same questions or are they different questions? They are two separate questions, yet they are the same question. And it is this, who can live in the presence of God? Meaning this, who can have communion and fellowship with God? There's only one type of person that can do so. It's someone who knows God. If you don't know God, you, you cannot live in His presence. Uh, you cannot dwell in His presence. You cannot abide in His presence. You cannot fellowship with Him in His presence. And so what we're going to see as this psalm goes is he's going to give the answer. He's going to give these sort of answers as to the specific one that can do so. Now, all of us in here tonight would say, if asked, do you want to live your life in the presence of God? We all say, well, yeah, of course. If you say, uh, if we talk about heaven, you go, how many of you are looking forward to being in the presence of God in heaven? Of course. But how many of us understand that our life, our Christian life, is to be lived in the presence of God? We're going to see this. John 15 talks a little bit about this, where Jesus is teaching his disciples, and he tells them, you have to abide in me. Now, God's presence, first of all, I want to look here at the word tabernacle and holy hill. Tabernacle and holy hill are the reference to the centralized presence of God in the Old Testament and in Jesus' time and day. What we find is that God's presence was very much permanent and there in the garden with man. God was there. But then the presence is sort of departed, if you will, because man has to depart from that garden because of sin. Then we find that the presence of God it sort of uh, abides with those who walk by faith, this sort of lineage of faith that progresses on. Then we find the presence of God showing up on the scene several other times, especially as you get into the book of Exodus. You find him there uh, on the backside of the desert in the burning bush with Moses as he reveals himself to him. He says, I am who I am. I am the I am. I am the great I am, right? And he says, go and tell Pharaoh, let my people go, and all these things. He tells him what he's going to do. Then we find the presence of God with the uh, cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. But then we find the dwelling of God's presence as a, a stable place, a stable position, first in the tabernacle. But let me ask you, was the tabernacle permanent? No. Matter of fact, the tabernacle only was there in one spot as long as God was hovering and staying in that one spot. The moment that the cloud began to move directions or began to go further down the line, they would pick up, pack up, and head out, right? Head them up, move them out, giddy up, right? They're on the road. They're headed out to go follow the Lord. Now, the presence of God was key. Why? Because for Israel, during that time of Moses, if you don't have the presence of God, what's going to happen to you? You will be annihilated, crushed, hunted down by your enemies. You will perish in battle. You will perish by famine, water, all these things. And so the presence of God is absolutely critical not just for our spiritual life, but as well for our physical life. Now, when we think here, as we come to this place, the tabernacle then would not stay permanent. It would be a part of David's day to a degree, but even not to the same beauty of which it was before. But then, that tabernacle of which David had as the ark is returned to house the presence of God, then that is just set it, simply setting up what his son Solomon would be able to do. And that would be create the most beautiful temple that this earth has seen to the Lord God, and God Himself, His glory, His manifest presence, His power, His might, His character, His attributes would literally come down and would rest and abide in that temple. The goal was for God to dwell amongst His people. Now notice this though. Who all could enter into the tabernacle? Could everybody? Nope. Who all could enter into the temple? Who could walk on up to the mercy seat of God? Everybody? Nope. Matter of fact, once a year, only one could enter into the Holy of Holies. That was, the great, that was the high priest. And they had to do so a certain way on the Day of Atonement to go through all these sacrifices and sprinkling of blood and all these different things, the scapegoat, the, the blood sprinkled inside the tabernacle, inside the mercy seat, the whole thing, right? But this is why what this psalm is going to do is this. It's going to point us to Christ. That Christ is the greater high priest. 
Christ is the greater tabernacle. He's the greater temple because Christ literally came to tabernacle with man. That's what John 1.14 talks about. That He put on flesh and dwelt among us. That's the idea of tabernacling with. And then in Revelation 21, we're told that He shall dwell with His people and there shall be no more need. In chapter 21 and 22 of Revelation, no more need of a temple there because the Lamb is in the midst. What does it mean to be in the midst of? It's His presence, that He's there. So what is the goal for us tonight? The goal for us tonight as we look at this psalm is to understand that the greatest need out of our life is to be and to live in the presence of God and that the greatest blessing that we can ever receive from God is to walk in communion and fellowship with Him. Now, the presence of God is the key to understanding the entirety of the Bible. Here's what I mean by this. God's presence itself is the goal of Scripture. There would be some here who might think that the goal of this life is to make it to heaven. But if that is simply the goal, then you will do all that you can to work your way or earn your way there, and you can't get there, right? And here's the thing, it's a misunderstanding about heaven in the first place. The greatest thing about heaven is not heaven. It's Christ. It's His presence. Do you understand this as well? The Scripture teaches us that the heaven that is currently there is going to melt away. There'll be a new heaven or new earth. So I'm not even looking forward to the one that I'm going to... If I dropped over and killed over dead, right? Y'all just scoop me over. Somebody else step on up, right? Finish it off, right? I'm going to go directly to heaven. Praise the Lord. But I'm not going to be at that one forever. The Lord's going to make a new heavens and a new earth, a, a new city, a new Jerusalem, where dwelleth righteousness, where God's presence will dwell amongst His people forever and forever. So the greatest thing about heaven, the greatest thing about eternity, and the greatest thing about our temporary life, as short as it is, is the presence of the Lord. Now God's presence, as we've, excuse me, let, let's look here. There's sort of three P's I want to look at as we're getting into this to sort of talk about this. We have God's promise that we've talked about an awful lot. That's His Word, right? God's promise is His Word. His Word is sure. It is steadfast. It is unmovable. It is unshakable. It is unbreakable. What God says He means when God says it, it settles it, it seals it, it is done, it is complete, it is final, right? It is even beyond being written in stone. Then we have God's provision. This is God's work. This is what He does. No man can stay the hand of the Lord. No man can make the Lord move or sit down or rise or sit or any of those things. Only the Lord. But then we also have to understand God's presence. That's His will. His will is that we would be in His presence. But in our sin, we cannot be in His presence. This psalm will answer that as well. But as we look at this, God's promise, provision, and His presence sum up the whole plot of redemptive history. It is God's promise that He gives that He will send a Son to save the the world from their sins. It is His provision in Christ that provides that atoning death, burial, and resurrection to save us to offer us forgiveness of sins. But then it is also God's presence that is the goal for that. Because the moment I trust in Christ, He now comes, the Holy Spirit comes to abide in me so that I can abide in Christ. Now there's not just a union with Christ, but there's communion with Christ. That now we have fellowship and friendship with the Lord who saved us and redeemed us and bought us. And so what is the whole goal? The whole goal of the Bible is to redeem sinners back to the presence of God. Sorensen writes, The greater thought here parallels that of John 15, where Jesus instructed us to abide in Him. David therefore asked, Who may do so? The mention to God's holy hill is a reference to the hilltop which the tabernacle was at Gibeon, about seven miles northwest of Jerusalem. This was during David's day. So the tabernacle is just outside of Jerusalem. There's Gibeon's about seven miles away. And this would be the holy hill that he refers. Why is it holy? Because that's where God's presence was. This is the same reason why when Moses was there on the backside of the desert, why did that spot become holy? Was it because Moses was holy? No. Was it because that bush was holy? No. Was it because the backside of the wilderness where nobody knows even where it's at was holy? No. It's because the Lord's presence was there. That's why it's holy. This is why we still call, and I still hold to calling this room that we're in a sanctuary. This is to be a holy place. Set apart, set apart for God's use, for God's people to meet with God. His presence is the goal of our entire existence, that we would know Him. 
So wise living, as we talk about words of wisdom, living wisely, right? We look at and understand this, that wise living is a life lived in God's presence. It is unwise to live without the presence of God. It is unwise to live without uh, listening to the Word of God or doing the work of God or surrendering to the will of God. It is incredibly unwise to do those things. Now we look here uh, in, in verse 1, we find, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? Now abide and dwell to you and I first immediately bring to mind what Jesus is referring to in John 13, that sort of abiding in union and communion with Christ. But it also has this understanding in the Hebrew of that of a sojourner. It not only gives the idea of a permanence in the presence of God, but a sojourner who is given hospitality in the tent of dwelling for fellowship. Now, let's, let's take our minds back to uh, the life of Abraham for a moment. If you remember when Abraham uh, had his tent, right? He was a tent dweller. He picked up, moved around as God had told him to in the promised land. And what we find is that there's some men, right before God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, there's three guys, two of them being angels, and I believe one of them being a Christophany. Nevertheless, they show up, and what does Abraham do? Feeds them out of the tent, right? It invites them in. It is this sort of idea of taking care of one, offering shelter to, providing, uh, giving fellowship with one another. We are designed by God to fellowship with our Creator, but sin separates us there is still this thick wall keeping us from entering in until christ has come and done away with that and has rent the veil so that you and i may now freely enter into the holiest of holies that we may enter in freely into his presence mclaren writes in the gracious hospitality of the antique world a guest was sheltered from all harm his person was inviolable his wants all met so the guest of jehovah is safe can claim asylum from every foe and share in all the bountiful provision of his abode. You ever heard the phrase, mi casa su casa, right? Your house is my house, right? Or how's, as you guys, that, that's how our, our Spanish-speaking friends might say it, but us, uh, us Carroll County folks, us redneck folks might say it, hey, make yourself at home, right? That's the idea. And so literally, the idea of redemption is that we can now make ourselves at home with God. That we can now freely enter in to His presence. We can kick off our shoes, if you will. We can enjoy His fellowship, His friendship. We can enjoy uh, all that He offers to us. All that belongs to Him now belongs to us in Christ Jesus. What a thought that is of the union that we have with Jesus and the communion that we now have, the fellowship with God that we can have, that now what belonged to Christ now is given freely to us, not by anything that we've done, not that anything that we've done to, to earn it, deserve it, but rather because of who He is and what He's done for us, that now He freely says, come in, take rest from the world. Come into my tent, be safe, come into my presence, enjoy a meal, enjoy my fellowship, enjoy the safety and the security that is in the presence of God. Now, that's what eternity is going to look like. Now, we've got to understand here this as well. David, to some degree, is also pointing eschatologically, meaning end time stuff. When we enter into the kingdom of Christ, when he we ushers in that kingdom, what we get to be a part of is a place where his presence abides with us and we get to abide in his presence forever and forever. As the verse Thessalonians tells us, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That is what is comforting uh, as Paul tells them, uh, comfort one another with these words. There's nothing more comforting than to know that we are comforted in the comfort of the great comforter. That we are literally with our, our Savior, our Lord, our Maker, our Creator, our Sustainer. We get to be in close, not pro just proximity or close in, in distance, but close in fellowship and relationship. So who shall abide in the tabernacle? Who shall dwell in the holy hill? Can a sinner do it? No. Now, if we stopped at verse 1, we'd be in some trouble, wouldn't we? Because how can an unholy person walk up a holy hill to a holy God? How can an unrighteous person enter into the holiest of holies of the tabernacle? You know what would happen if even the high priest that year 
did not do something right, and he entered into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, you know what would happen to him? Dead. And what makes us think that we can just waltz in all willy-nilly into the presence of God? See, we can't think that. However, what you and I know is what is beyond verse 1, and what you and I know is beyond Psalm 15, and beyond even the collection of Psalms. What you and I know is that Christ has come as the promise and provision of God, His very presence to man, to draw us, to be the mediator, to bring us into the presence and to reconcile us with God the Father. Now, as we look here, verses 2 down through 5 are going to give us the answer to this in specifics. First of all, verse 2 gives us the positive conditions of who can enter in. Now, what we want to understand before we get into these conditions is these are not works for salvation, but rather someone who is by faith trusting in God's promise, trusting in His provision, trusting and looking forward and longing for His presence in their life. He begins in verse 2, he says, He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. We find three things. We find he has righteous work, right? Uh, excuse, uh, he has a righteous walk, right? He has a righteous work and, and he has righteous words. Everything. This is talking about the whole inner man and outer man. Everything begins here and here first. We often think that in order to earn God's favor, we have to do the outward. The outward can never earn God's favor. Only faith pleases the Lord. As Hebrews tells us, without faith it is impossible to please Him. So you can do all the outward works. This is why we could build, a, we could build today a, a beautiful temple and it would still mean nothing if there's no faith. We could sing the most beautiful of songs, but if we did so without faith, it means nothing. We could give all of our money away, but if we do so with a prideful heart, it means nothing. We could preach the finest of sermons, and if we do it with the wrong motive, it means nothing. So here, these positive conditions begin and show separate things, but yet one key thing. It is that the one who can enter into God's presence, the one who can have fellowship with Him, is one who simply believes. The difference between living in the presence of God and not living in the presence of God is faith. The difference between being able to go one day in the future to be in His presence in heaven or to be cast into outer darkness is one simple thing. Faith. Faith, faith, faith. Do you believe or not? Now, as we come to verse 2, look here. First of all, he starts off with walketh uprightly. One who walks with integrity and lives blameless before God and man. To walk uprightly, you and I think uprightly, meaning straight back, you know, chest out, shoulders back, the whole thing, right? We, we make it almost seem prideful to walk uprightly. The idea of walking uprightly is to do that which is literally right before God. It is that not that we live sinless, but that we live blameless. Now, this is a key. You and I, as long as we have on this flesh, will never be sinless, will we? Never. Not one time. We'd like to think that we could. We'd like to think we, well, you know, I don't know if I sinned yesterday. Well, that thought took care of that, right? You know, we, we, we sin much more than what we realize because our flesh still clings onto our, our bones and, and still nips at our hearts and our minds and corrupts us. So that is why the great promise that Paul gives to us later on in the New Testament that one day we're going to, take this corruptible and put on incorruption. We're going to take this mortal off and put on immortality to have a glorified body. This means that we won't have on flesh anymore that will be affected by the curse or held down by the weight of the curse or will ever uh, abuse the grace of God again or fail God again. And so what we see is that the one who walks uprightly is not sinless, but yet he is blameless. That's the qualifications for being a pastor, but I believe it's also the way in which our, our Christians are to live. Now, here's what some would do. And then Paul addresses this in Romans 6, of course. There'd be those who say, well, since I can't live sinless, that means I can just, you know, enjoy life, right? Sin a little bit, not, just kind of enjoy my sin. He says, God forbid. How can, we, how can we abuse God's grace and do that? We shouldn't. Because truly, walking uprightly comes from an attitude 
of a, of a heart that wants to please God. Genuinely wants to please God. We've got plenty of people who sit on plenty of pews and do plenty of church work without ever wanting to please God, but just wanting to please oneself. We can never be spiritually at the place where all that we do is to please us. Nor can it be to please other people. If I can tell you anything, I can't make me happy, and I definitely can't make y'all happy. Not everybody at one time, at least. <laughs> if we can't do that, what should be our focus? To please the Lord. What pleases the Lord? As we talked about, walking uprightly, working righteousness, speaking the truth in his heart. But what are those three things? Believing and trusting God. Faith. A life of faith. Ephesians tells us a little bit about this. I'll turn there for you. Ephesians chapter 1 gives us a little bit of a, a clue in what walking uprightly looks like. Now, Ephesians chapter 1 begins here, verse 3 and 4 is what we'll see. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Notice the key, in Christ. For the whole rest of this chapter in Ephesians 1, the key to understanding and interpreting it is found in Christ. That's union and communion with Him. It is our union in Him that we are now dead, buried, and risen with Him even before the foundations of the world as he'll see. But verse 4, he says, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy. That is holy. means right, just, pure, clean, separated, set apart, usable, and without blame before him in love. Those who love the Lord will seek to please the Lord. Those who truly love the Lord and know the Lord will seek, one, they'll want to be sinless, but knowing that they can't be, they want to be blameless. You find any wonderful hero of the faith in the Bible, and I can tell you this, they were not sinless, were they? Think about David here, he writes Psalm 15. Was David sinless? No, quite the opposite. But yet he was still called a man after God's own heart. David himself had committed adultery, even uh, to some degree having murder with Uriah, uh, having him killed on the front lines to try to cover up his sin. We find that he was full of sin, as much as anybody else could be. And yet, by faith, he was found blameless, right, walking uprightly before the Lord. It reminds us as well of Enoch and Noah in Genesis, that they walked with God. That's the idea of fellowship, but we can only have fellowship when we walk in the light as He is in the light. The second thing in verse 2 is that this wise man or this one who is uh, able to come into the presence of God or abide in the presence of God, he not only walks uprightly or blamelessly, but he worketh righteousness. This means two things. One, he does that which is right, and two, he does not do that which is wrong. He seeks to do that which is right. Let me ask you a little pop quiz here. When is it okay to do the wrong thing? Never, right? Y'all are quiet. I don't know if you're thinking about it or not. You may be considering, uh, I don't know, is there, is there multiple choice here? Right? There's no good time, no right time to do that which is wrong. Let me ask you this, all right? See if y'all can pass this one then. Is it always right to do right? Yes, of course. It's never right to do wrong. And it's never wrong to do right. We must always do that which is right. Righteousness. It is living justly before the Lord. One who does that which is right before God first and man while doing what God requires by faith and doing what is right to others. So it's not just someone that does the sort of golden rule, if you will, and do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But rather, this is obeying God's law, God's commands. Our life must be centered around loving obedience to our Heavenly Father. It must never be out of obligation that we do that which is right, or else that's wrong. You say, well, can you do the right thing and it still be wrong? Yes. Doing something that is right with the wrong heart is wrong. Doing something right with the right heart is right. Notice the difference. Here he worketh righteousness. And right living should be the fruit of right believing. Now there's plenty of people who have right doctrine, 
but live like the world. There's plenty of people who know all the facts and figures about who Jesus is, but yet miss it. And they live their own life for themselves. That's a pandemic in our day. But the third thing that we get to in verse number 2 that he talks about in this positive answers here, he walks uprightly, he walks blamelessly. He does a work with his hands that is right, but that he speaks the truth in his heart. He knows the truth, thinks on the truth, and speaks the truth both to his heart and from his heart. It was the same Jesus that says, it's not what comes in that defiles, it's what comes out that defiles. It's, it's the heart of man that defiles. Our hearts are desperately wicked. Who can know it? We're sinful in our flesh. Our, our nature is, is vile to its very core, and the flesh is always at war against the Spirit who now abides in us. And so if we are to live with wisdom in our life, if we are to live wisely, if we are to live that way, we must do so by faith. And it begins in our inner man before it goes to the outer man. Before you've said something wrong, you've thought it already. Before you've done something wrong, you've already thought it, believed it, and they act on it. Uh, we, we think about this. Sin is much deeper than what we realize and understand. Sin affects our minds. It affects our thinking. It affects our belief. It affects our actions. We sometimes think that sin is only the outward thing. No, it is much, much deeper. And with this, we see here the answer. So who can abide in the tabernacle? Who can come to the holy hill? One, by faith, the one who walks blamelessly before God, the one who does that which is right before God, and the one that speaks the truth in his heart. You'll never be able to speak the truth in your heart if you don't know the truth. You'll never speak the truth to others if you don't know the truth yourself. So what is the truth? That God has given us His promise, His provision to bring us into His presence. This is the whole story of the Bible. Of the redemptive act of Christ to save sinners, to reconcile us to God. Now look at verse 3 with me. Here we find the negative conditions. Now, John will sort of write this way in 1 John where he'll give some positive things that say one thing and then give sort of the, the negative of what those statements are. Now here's what he says in verse 3. The one who can dwell in the presence of God is one that backbiteth not with his tongue. And he just addressed the tongue sort of the idea of speaking the truth in his heart. And he says, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. So meaning this, you're only going to be full of faith if you don't do those things. You're only going to be able to be in the presence of God if you don't do those things. Backbiters and backstabbers have no place of fellowship with God is what we find here. Verse 3, the Lord cares what you say. The Lord cares how you say it. The Lord cares who you say it to. He cares about your motives. He cares about your actions. He cares about your neighbor much more than what we care about our neighbor. There would be one who would ask Jesus, who is our neighbor? You look around. You've got, you got neighbors in here. You've got neighbors to your left, to your right. It is everyone else around us who is made by God who needs to know God. And there's no place for backbiting here is the idea. Backbiting is this idea of Gossip, slander, ill-speaking, mud-slinging. It is perhaps one of the worst sins that we have in the church today. Maybe not here that I'm aware, but nevertheless, where you find people, you find backbiting, you find gossip, you find all these things. And it should never be so. As James talks about, the same mouth that praises God is also the same mouth that speaks evil of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Guzik writes, David here understood that an upright and righteous life is known by the way someone speaks. As Jesus said in Matthew 12, 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our words matter. As much as our actions. Because both tell what the heart believes. Both tell what the heart wants. Boyce writes, 
I think more damage has been done to the church and its work by gossip, criticism, and slander than by any other single sin. So I say, don't do it. Bite your tongue before you criticize another Christian. He's absolutely right. What we find throughout the Bible is that God can't stand those that cause division. Matter of fact, God says that He hates hates it as, as much as He hates those who shed innocent blood. He hates those that cause division. The greatest division that we find uh, in divis- a divisive tool in the church or in the world today is the tongue. It is what we say, who we say it to, how we say it, why we say it. We must be careful here. Because if we are to please God, if we are to be in communion with the Lord, you ever notice this? If you're not walking so close to the Lord, your mouth starts to slip. You become a little bit faster to maybe say some words that might make a sailor blush. You might be a little more uh, willing to uh, criticize or, or uh, bring someone else who is just as saved as you are down, either to their face or not. Both are just as wicked. We find that when we are walking a little bit further from the Lord than we need to or ought to, that we start talking and using our words and our tongues for evil. First John tells us about this, and he discusses much of these proofs and, and things of salvation. But uh, John writes here in First John uh, chapter three, verse eleven to sixteen. He says, "For this is the message that you heard from the beginning that we should love one another." Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. We know that we have passed from death into life, because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. You won't lay down your life for a brother in Christ that you're gossiping about. You won't lay down your life for the church when you discuss or put the church down. And I would have you know this, to dishonor the church of God is to dishonor Christ Himself. To speak ill of the body and bride and the members of the body and bride of Christ is to speak ill of Jesus Himself. We don't view it that way. Us good old Baptists, we'll, we'll shout it down when those big sins of the world, adultery and fornication and LGBTQ+, and all these different sins. That we'll, oh, yeah, oh, that's right. That's wrong. That sure is wrong stuff. That sure is, that sure is wrong. And then when it comes to backbiting and gossip and wrong speech, we kind of clam up a little bit. Because we know that it's wrong, but we think we can get by with it because, well, you know, it's not one of the big sins. God says He can't stand it. Neither should we. Because it is a testament to how close we are walking with the Lord. Your tongue will tell you how close you are to God. Because if you're walking close to the Lord, it's going to be very hard to say certain words, certain phrases, certain jokes, certain ways of thinking even. You're not going to feel near as comfortable about gossiping about someone that Christ died for when you're standing next to Jesus and you see His nail-pierced hands. Now look here. To sin against your neighbors, to sin against God, because all sin is against God. We must have a right view of sin. We must have a right view of ourselves, both without Christ and with Christ, and what that means, our union and communion with Him. But as well, we must simply have a right view of who God is. Much of our problems would be solved with that. Now we get into this godly character of those who are able to abide in His presence. Verse 4 and 5, he says, "...in whose eyes a vile person is contemned, but he honoreth them that fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not." Sorensen writes, three additional traits of righteous character are listed. One, one who walks in close fellowship with the Savior will be disgusted with those living in sin. Depth of fellowship with the Lord will at the same time cause abhorrence of sin and those who so live. The reason why sin doesn't bother us anymore is because we've been so desensitized to it. It's all around us, and because it's all around us, we just don't care like we ought to. 
We don't view sin the way in which we should. We should never tolerate sin. We should never laugh at sin. We should never, we should never abuse sin. We should never look at sin as something to be taken lightly. Sin was taken so serious by God that Jesus died for it and became our sin. That there is a real and literal hell because of sin. Sin is serious. But two, Sorensen writes, to the contrary, one abiding in close fellowship with his Savior will honor those who fear God. A righteous man will esteem those who live uprightly, walking in the fear of God. We're not going to cut down one another. We're not going to put each other down. Rather, we're going to lift up, edify, encourage those that fear the Lord. Notice that key, fear the Lord. That's another way of putting faith, trust, dependence upon. A fear of the Lord is a beginning of wisdom and, and knowledge. Three, Sorensen writes, Furthermore, one abiding in Him will keep His word even if it turns out to be difficult. Integrity of word is a bedrock of righteousness. As the Bible tells us, let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. Say what you mean and mean what you say. That should be our life. We often get tossed about to and fro. We bounce back and forth like yo-yos or ping-pong balls or a pinball machine. Just bam, 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 bam. We bounce off of everything. We are to be steady, but we'll never be steady unless we are trusting in the Lord and living wisely in His presence. You see, what we find is that when we are further from His presence, our life is much less steady, isn't it? You can even think or equate it to this with Peter there walking on the water. What does he do? Well, he's walking closer to the Lord. You'd say, well, this, the presence must be getting better. He must be able to walk better as he's getting closer. Yeah, but he takes his eyes off. Starts to sink. We've got to understand that, that the presence of God will keep us from sinking and the presence of God and abiding near to Him will take care of these things. In our church, in our Christian walk, a true believer lives like it. He's able to discern darkness from light, but he is also dedicated to upholding his integrity to all people. If anybody should care about holiness and right living and standards, it should be the Christian. Whatever happened to holiness? Whatever happened to godly living? Whatever happened to surrender and to sacrifice? Whatever happened to these things? We've somewhere lost them in the mix and the mire of living in this world and being far too comfortable here. The one who can abide with God is one who does not use his money for evil or is dishonest with his finances. Look at this. He says in verse 4, He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not, he that putteth not out his money to usury, nor taketh reward against the innocent. The idea here, as Sorensen puts it, such are honest and decent in building dealings, in business dealings. In Exodus 22-25, Leviticus 25, and Deuteronomy 23, Israel was forbidden from loaning money to a brother or neighbor with interest. They could loan it, but without interest. He then says, the idea is not about entering in a contract for a mortgage or other contractual loan. Rather, the idea is of a brother or neighbor in distress and gouging him in a loan with exorbitant interest. The greater thought is of taking advantage of someone, especially when in distress. It'd be like this. Someone comes to me and they say, I have not had anything to drink. I've had no water for three days. I'm going to die. And I've got a lemonade stand. And I've been charging five cents for a cup of lemonade. That's pretty cheap. I don't think we could probably get away with that anymore. Maybe a couple years ago, but not anymore. But with this, I see their need. They are thirsting literally to death. And I'm charging five cents for this lemonade. And they, they're the only one in line. And I've got the lemonade. I've got what they need to survive. And I go, you know what? Hey, hate to break it to you, but the price has gone up. Actually, it's $5 a cup. And they got no money. Hey, I'm sorry. I guess you have to find another lemonade stand. And that's pretty bad, isn't it? To you and I, that's terrible. 
And that's exactly what was happening in David's day. It happened in Jesus' day. It happens in our day. People taking, care, people taking advantage of one another. That's not Christ-like. It's not faithful. It's not righteous. It's not blameless. It's not good. It shows the sinfulness of man. But as well, this shows us something else important. That God cares not just about the way we think and the way we believe and the things that we do, but He even cares about the things that we have and the way in which we go about our motivation. He cares about even things like your money. How many of you have ever heard someone preach or say that God doesn't want your money? Anybody ever heard that? A few of you, right? Well, they're, they're lying. God does want your money. He doesn't need it because he's, he's got all that He needs. What does it mean that we mean by God wants my money? Yeah, because He's given it to you. He wants you to give everything that you have in your life to Him. Does he, does he mean, are you saying He wants me to sell everything I got and just be poor and destitute and eat ramen noodles every day? No. It means this. Everything that you have belongs to the Lord. And therefore, we are to use it to the Lord. You see, there's no communion with God when I'm withholding things that belong to Him. I can't have fellowship with God when I'm keeping things in the dark and the secret, like Ananias and Sapphira, where I'm going, look at what I've given to you, Lord. I was supposed to give you this much, but I really gave you this. We just won't talk about that. We must be blameless, honest, and walk rightly before God. He deserves all of us. He desires all of us. Because He's given us all of Himself. We desire all that God wants to give to us, don't we? I want all that God wants to give to me, and then some. And if you don't want what, what He's going to give you, I'll, I'll take it too, right? We want from the Lord, but He wants from us as well. He does not need, but He wants us to simply give Him ourselves. And that's what this idea is. The only way to live in fellowship with the Lord is to give yourself to Him. And the reason why most of us lack communion and fellowship with the Lord is because we lack the humility to give all of ourselves to Him. End of verse 5 gives us the last thing, and that's the promise. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. Obedience brings a blessing under the Old Covenant and even into the New Covenant to some degree with Christ. As we obey Him, the Lord blesses beyond measure. He gives us more than what we could ever ask for. He'll not only answer prayer, but He'll answer prayers that you never prayed. That's who God is. The greatest blessing, though, is to be able to abide in fellowship with God. One author put it this way, to continue in sin is to frustrate the very purpose of God and grace. To do that is to be excluded from His tent and to be shut out from the holy mountain. So when we follow the Lord, we're not shut out from the mountain. But when we... When we trust in the Lord, we're not kept away from His presence. Rather, we're drawn into communion and fellowship with the Lord. And there's no greater blessing than knowing and abiding in God's presence. Guzik writes, They shall never be moved. In the old covenant system, the stability of life is a blessing from God given to the obedient. Under the new covenant, the promise of stability and security is given to those who abide in faith, such faith being evident through a life lived in general obedience. The idea behind shall never be moved is that this righteous one will be a guest in the tent of God forever. In New Testament words, we could express it like this. And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. 1 John 2.17 The key to abiding in communion and fellowship with the Lord is found right here in Psalm 15. Who can... Abide in a tabernacle. Who can dwell in His holy hill? Who can be in His presence? The one that simply lives a life of faith. Wise living is living to be in fellowship with Christ. Because there's no greater place. Another author puts it this way, it is easy and proper to look at this list and see where we fall short. Let's stop there for a minute. All of us could pause right now and go, man, I sure do fall short. I know I do. I know I have this week. I know I have today. But here's some hope. 
Yet seeing our sin in this psalm should drive us to Jesus. We see this whole psalm through the grid of the new covenant. We see Jesus as having perfectly fulfilled the requirements of the law and the standards of this psalm. We see that by faith His obedience is accounted as ours and that we are being transformed into His image. Thus the fulfillment of this psalm should be more and more mark of our life. So it means this. You say, man, I'm not blameless all the time. I'm not perfect all the time. We're not perfect ever, are we? I'm not always walking rightly and working rightly and speaking rightly and not backbiting and not uh, taking advantage of my brother and all these different things. Sometimes I do those things. I know I do. So where's our hope in this psalm? It is that those that do these things shall never be moved. You go, well, that's not me because I do those things. What can I do? Look to Christ. His righteousness is now yours. His obedience is now yours. Take a hold of the union that you have with Christ and enjoy the communion that we now have with Him forever and forever. You and I can then say confidently in Christ, that you and I too shall never be moved, that we are now stable and steadfast, unmovable, unbreakable, unshakable in Christ Jesus. But what's the key to this? What's the key to wise living? What's the key to living in the presence of God? It is living by faith alone. Trust in the Lord's promise. Trust in His provision. And then you'll get to live through and in and by His presence. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this day. We're grateful for your faithfulness. Thank you for the psalm, for the many truths in it. Help us to live and to walk and abide in your presence, Lord, to to care for you, to love you as you love us. And Lord, that we would seek you in your presence every day of our life and that we would desire nothing more uh, than to uh, abide with you and as you abide in us. Lord, as we go from this place, keep us safe. May our hearts and our minds be focused upon you. May you apply this scripture and these truths to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.